The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back Dr. Gary Wank. He is the author of Your Brain on Food, How Chemicals Control Your Thoughts and Feelings. And he is absolutely perfect to write this book because he holds a PhD. He is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and molecular virology immunology, and medical genetics at The Ohio State University. He also blogs for Psychology Today on topics that we're going to talk about. So, Dr. Wank, welcome back. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you, Melinda. It is my pleasure, and I was so delighted when your publisher sent me the second edition of Your Brain on Food. We spoke earlier about the first edition, and now you have a brand-new updated version. And I just want to let our listeners know that this is a very user-friendly and interesting, I want to say easily digestible book on the topics. And there are so many interesting points here. So I'm just going to take it from the top of my question list, and we'll see how far we get. All right. So first of all, your brain on food. I want to know why you continue to write on this particular topic. Wow, you know, that's a great question. I rarely get asked. It's related to the uh, the students that I teach here at Ohio State. They're always bringing new things into the classroom to talk about related to the things that they're consuming. And, and it's an ever-growing list. You know, the media that they're exposed to encourages them to eat so badly and to just ingest everything without concern. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to make the point that I'd like people to see food as a drug. Uh, We tend to be more careful with drugs than we do with food, and somehow we think because food is natural, we can just go ahead and eat whatever we want. Uh, But when you start viewing it as a uh, food as something medicinal, you begin to be a little more careful. And just in the same way that we're being, you know, advertised and sold various over-the-counter and prescription meds, the same thing is true of all these different uh, foods that are showing up in the grocery stores that are teasing our students into just consuming ever more densely caloric foods. Mm-hmm. So I felt the need for an updated version of the book. There was just so much more happening in the past four years that I felt like I needed to address. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more with you. And I love the way in your promotional materials, there's one line that really jumped out at me, and it said, in addition to discussing the effects of food on the brain, you ultimately remind readers that everything we consume can affect how we think, feel, and act. And all I can say is amen to that. <laughs> right. Uh, that was the main point of the book. I'm very glad you took notice. All right. So my big question that always rises to the top where people debate is, is food addictive? Absolutely, yes. And we understand the actual underlying mechanisms that allow me to say that with such emphasis. As we've learned more about how people become addicted to cocaine, heroin, uh, coffee, cigarettes, the various mechanisms in the brain uh, that are targeted by those drugs have been pretty well worked out. And now as we're beginning to pay more attention to what people are consuming, In the past few years, it's become clear that the exact same parts of the brain, the exact same neural mechanisms, 
underlie a person's addiction to sugar or coffee or whatever it is that we like, chocolate, uh, uh, chocolate cake. In my case, I'm, I'm perseverating on chocolate here. <laughs> um, and essentially, by the same mechanisms that we become addicted to alcohol, heroin, and cocaine. You know, what's interesting, after I published the first edition, I heard from foodies who were very upset that I was comparing, you know, uh, being addicted to uh, foods with being addicted to heroin. They just thought that just couldn't be the case. But when you look how people treat food and how they crave food, I think it becomes obvious that there's uh, considerable similarities. And when I'm teaching undergraduates here, I, uh, I can't actually describe what it feels like to be addicted to heroin and what it feels like to crave that next treatment, you know, that next injection. But when I tell them just to, you know, stop eating for the rest of the day uh, and then 20 hours from now, just what are you thinking about? Well, you won't be thinking about anything other than food and when can you get that next candy bar or piece of bread or whatever it might be. That's what addiction is like for people who are addicted to drugs because our brain is craving the food. Same mechanisms. So, yes, we can become addicted to food in exactly the same way we become addicted to classic drugs of abuse. Well, since you are a professor who studies the brain, I wonder if we could just dig a little bit deeper into that because I really want to try to understand this myself. So we might have a craving for something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're addicted to that particular substance. Am I correct? Well, you know, probably not anymore. You know, a lot of textbooks don't use the term addiction so much because it's a real fuzzy term that it's difficult to define. Everyone seems to use it differently. Yeah. In general, craving, uh, when we even deal with animals uh, in the laboratory or humans uh, every day, it means that the person, the, the brain, the person's brain is essentially inducing them to go and repeat a behavior that they repeated once before. Maybe that behavior is ingesting heroin. Maybe that behavior is ingesting sugar or coffee. But craving a substance indicates to us that the body has become used to the presence of that molecule, whatever it might be, sugar, heroin, um, and the absence of that molecule from the body has led the brain to, you know, present some feelings. And we all know what it feels like to be hungry. It's a very difficult thing to describe to somebody who's never felt that. I mean, it's, it's something we all know what it feels like, but we don't have the words for it. We just say, I'm hungry. And you have this, this urge to go find food no matter what. I mean, people will even pick up foods that are obviously uh, unpleasant looking, unpleasant smelling. They might even be moldy and old, but if you're starving, you'll eat it. Right. The same thing is true for people who are addicted to heroin. Even if the needle is dirty and the, the risk is great and, and the cost is huge, people will still get that next hit. Mm-hmm. So it's always easy to make comparisons between drugs and food. And that was the purpose of the book. Foods really do behave like drugs in us. And that's, that was my point at the beginning, which was to make the statement that chemicals are foods, chemicals are drugs, foods are chemicals, drugs are chemicals. There really isn't any difference. And the way our brain responds uh, to these things are, is very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Well, there are so many different directions we can take here because it's such an exciting area when you think about how we can modulate the way we feel and even our longevity with food substances, and I use the word substances because it's things like caffeine and spices that we don't necessarily consider food, but food is the carrier. So let's talk a little bit about coffee and tea, because I know that when I wake up in the morning, I am indeed craving coffee. And I was very interested in your book because you did 
differentiate between coffee and tea, and the effects on the body are a little bit different. So if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about why does coffee make us feel so good, and then let's compare coffee and tea with regard to their effects in the body. Well, first of all, why does it make you feel so good? Um, you sort of have to separate coffee into two components first. Uh, first is the caffeine that you're craving and that the brain actually has specific protein receptors to respond to. Then there's the, the ritual surrounding the preparation of the coffee, the taste of the coffee, the aroma of the coffee. All those things play a role that you can't ignore, just in the same way that the preparation of uh, a drug um, and the environment that you want to take the drug in play a role in how pleasurable the drug is going to be when you eat it or inject it or whatever. So if you separate out those two components, uh, you, could, uh, you could demonstrate that even decaffeinated coffee can be craved. People can feel as though they just want the, the taste and the aroma, and that's good enough. But most of us, though, who are addicted to coffee are really addicted to the caffeine, the chemical in it that easily crosses the blood-brain barrier finds its own specific receptor sites, and stimulates those. But that takes us to the next step. What exactly is caffeine doing that makes you want to crave it? Well, caffeine um, is going to make you feel good in relation to how active your brain has been during the previous few hours. So most people, after they've been awake a long time, maybe it's afternoon, they're beginning to fade a little bit in their biorhythm, they'll go get some coffee or chocolate or something with a stimulant in it. And that's an obvious effect because we can see we've been awake, our brain's been busy at work, and a very active brain uses up an energy molecule in the brain, which everyone learned about probably in high school or biology, called ATP. And when ATP is used up as you're thinking and these, you know, complex thoughts, the A, the adenosine, falls off as debris in the brain. And that adenosine debris acts to inhibit the neural systems in the brain whose job it is is to help you pay attention. So what coffee is doing is blocking that inhibition. And so thus your brain starts waking up a little bit. In addition, the caffeine has the ability to release adrenaline, starts releasing sugar out of the liver. So there's a bunch of things that coffee is doing to us that help wake us up in the afternoon. But then your point, you wake up in the morning and you crave coffee. Why? Two reasons. One is that the caffeine levels in your body have fallen and the brain is missing that molecule. And the brain oftentimes asks us, you know, hey, I'm used to caffeine being present. Where's my caffeine molecules? And it gives you the same kind of craving that you might have just to eat breakfast. The second goes back to that ATP molecule again. In the hours before a person wakes up, say between 2, 3, 4, 5 a.m. and the alarm clock going off, the brain is very active. It's dreaming. This is when we spend most of our evening when we're asleep dreaming. And we tend to dream a great deal in the hour or so before waking. So just before you woke up this morning, you were dreaming a lot and you had a very active brain and it was busy burning up ATP energy molecules, distributing this adenosine debris, which is when you wake up is going to be inhibiting your ability to pay attention and learn and so you wake up fuzzy-headed and you can't activate the necessary neurotransmitter systems and you need caffeine to block all those adenosine molecules that are just getting in the way. And so in the morning, we crave caffeine. In addition, it turns out that we crave sugar. I mean, there's a reason that, uh, you know, Dunkin' Donuts and uh, all these other donut places are scattered around our, our drive to work. Our brain wants nothing more than to get sugar and choline out of the donuts and caffeine from the coffee. 
you know, these things aren't there by, uh, by random chance. They're there because we want them to be there. We visit these places in the morning and to satisfy our cravings, our addictions. And it's because our brain wants them. And it wants them very specifically. I mean, why, why don't we have places selling steak or, or odd things uh, that we might want to have for lunch or dinner or even alcohol? It's because that's not what our brain is craving at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So our brain really, when you wake up, wants us to find uh, a simple source of sugar, like a donut or a bagel or anything else like that, something sweet, sugar-coated cereals, and caffeine. And it's all due to the fact that in the hours before we woke up, we were busy dreaming a great deal, and our brain was very active. That's um, very now, interesting. Which leads me to one other very important point I made in the book, and that's that oftentimes our brain is going to want us to do things that our body would prefer we didn't do, like eat simple sugars and bagels yeah. and you know hash browns for breakfast. Uh, not healthy for the body, but it's what the brain is craving. That's very interesting. All right, now let's compare the effect of coffee with tea. If we wake up and the coffee isn't available for some reason, we have tea instead. Tea has stimulants in it. Will it help us feel less fuzzy or be just as effective as coffee? Yes, it will. It contains a lot of caffeine. There are some other compounds in there. Uh, but again, you have to separate out the components of tea, that, uh, like the, the flavonoids, the anti-inflammatories, the antioxidants that are in coffee and tea. But those have a separate effect that's more long-term than the caffeine, which is a very abrupt short-term effect in periods of minutes to hours. So, yes, it's just as beneficial. And we know that to be the case from epidemiological studies. So for many years, we've recognized that people who drink a lot of coffee, say five cups a day, which is you know pharmaceutical levels, um, have a very reduced incidence of getting Parkinson's disease. And we often thought that it was something to do with the coffee, the flavonoids and things that are in there. Turns out it's not. It's the caffeine because even people who drink Diet Coke, we can see a benefit from the caffeine in the Coca-Cola. So caffeine itself is besides blocking adenosine and helping us pay more attention seems to protect the brain from the consequences of degenerative changes that are leading to Parkinson's disease. So it doesn't matter where you get the caffeine. It could be tea, coffee, sodas. Uh, It's the molecule itself that our brain is needing. So it doesn't matter. Tea or coffee, they're both going to be good for you, whatever you like. The one thing is that it's easier uh, in the way we prepare coffee to concentrate the caffeine. We can make a higher dense, you know, uh, number of molecules of caffeine per volume in coffee. Uh, usually iced tea has more caffeine in it than regular hot tea, you know, because people tend to throw a lot of tea bags into it as they're making it. Right. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Gary Wank. He is the author of Your Brain on Food, How Chemicals Control Your Thoughts and Feelings. Dr. Wank, I was reading on about coffee or tea, which is better, and I thought it was very interesting that you cite a 19th century Dutch physician who advised men and women to drink tea daily, hour by hour if possible, beginning with 10 cups a day and increasing the dose to the utmost the stomach can contain and the kidneys can eliminate. Wow. Uh, Yeah, wow. (laughs) Well, you know, that was a long time ago, but (laughs) he may have been on to something. 10 cups a day is probably too much. We don't know how they were making their coffee and tea in those days, but... uh, in fact, that raises a really important point. We don't even know how our local barista is making it at, say, the local Starbucks. There was a study published a couple of years ago where some guy decided 
every day to go to his same uh, store, same Starbucks, it turns out, and he measured the caffeine levels in the exact same cup of coffee that they made for him. And it varied by between 100 and 200 fold from day to day. So uh, oh sometimes goodness. people notice that, uh, that uh, one day it really gives them a boost and the next day it doesn't. And how can that be? I went to the same place, ordered the same drink. But how the coffee bean was prepared, how it was roasted, who prepared it, how they made your coffee, uh, your drink, uh, all those things go into determining how much caffeine you actually get. And it's highly inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you've done a lot of research on Alzheimer's disease at Ohio State, and I was curious, too, where you talk about tea and how tea can help prevent neuron cell death in Alzheimer's disease, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. That's related to some epidemiological evidence that people found. Um, we've noticed by interviewing elderly people who are not demented, when you interview them, you find out that they will uh, tell you things uh, that they think underlies the reason why they did not become demented. And some of the things they mentioned to us, uh, we followed up on, and some scientists have followed up on this lead of tea, others coffee, I've looked at coffee. But tea is interesting in that it's not the caffeine now. It seems to be the other ingredients in the tea. There's a lot of wonderful anti-inflammatories, some what we call flavonoids. You find those in dark chocolate, and people have heard about eating dark chocolate as a preventative for cognitive decline. Anything that's very colorful is going to have these wonderfully protective chemicals in them. And tea is one of these naturally occurring compounds that we make these hot water decoctions from and extract out of uh, the leaf uh, some very uh, beneficial you know, molecules. And there are many of them. It's difficult to blame it on one single molecule. We'd like to because people would like to be able to just put that in a pill and give it to somebody. But at the moment, the epidemiology is simply pointing to the fact that tea contains a number of very beneficial compounds besides the caffeine mm-hmm. that seem to be neuroprotective. Most often, their neuroprotection targets the consequences of eating a lot of food and breathing in a lot of oxygen. It's the antioxidants in coffee that seem to be so beneficial, and it's probably the same thing is true for tea. Mm-hmm. Well, you're just giving us a lot of really good news today, a lot of happy news about what we consume and how it helps us. And I want to erase one of the concerns also that people have that I've been looking at this for years, but you've done the research, and that has to do with the presence of aluminum. So we're staying on the topic of Alzheimer's, but I'm going away from food and talking about now how we prepare it and in what kinds of pots and pans. And you report that aluminum is not the cause of Alzheimer's. No, it's certainly not. A number of years ago, we discovered that in the brains of individuals who had died with Alzheimer's disease, that we were finding elevated levels of aluminum in certain parts of the brain. And that led sort of a long series of studies trying to make the connection between aluminum and Alzheimer's. What we ended up making was a connection between aluminum and dementia, but it was in a very select group of people, and those were individuals who were undergoing a dialysis for kidney failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there, some hospitals weren't doing a very good job of getting the aluminum salts out of the, uh, the drinking water they were using. They were purifying it with various chemicals, but aluminum levels started becoming quite high, and people were being dialyzed with a very high aluminum solution. And it turns out that whenever soft tissues in our body show degeneration, aluminum salts will settle there. Mm. Uh, And that's what we were seeing. It wasn't causing the dementia. uh, It was simply showing up due to some neuronal death. It turns out that after somebody's had a heart attack, the injury in the heart 
also shows deposits of aluminum. So it doesn't seem to cause dementia any more than it would cause heart attacks. Our bodies do not use aluminum for anything at all. I mean, we use a lot of rare metals, but aluminum is completely inert in us for the most part. If you get to be really high doses, it can interfere with the DNA function. Most people never reach that level. Mm-hmm. And in the book, I talked about how, because I've been asked this so often, what about aluminum cookware or aluminum cans? And there is no evidence that those things contribute to aluminum in our diet. The main reason is that the form, the chemical form that aluminum is found in cookware, we are unable to absorb. It will get across partly the blood-gut barrier, but it won't do anything. It can't be used by the brain. Mm -hmm. The real risk with aluminum comes from eating meats and grains because plants and animals who eat the plants concentrate the aluminum. So we do get a fair amount of aluminum from our diet, and, and that aluminum is different. It's bioavailable. So... Sometimes meats, hamburgers, have been discovered to have a 1,000 parts per million. That's pretty high. And that kind of aluminum that a cow has converted in this bioavailable form will be absorbed by our bodies. Now, we don't really know the long-term consequences of eating cheeseburgers with high in aluminum because aluminum levels need to be quite high. We've only seen it in the laboratory in situations where we've mimicked uh, dialysis. Hmm. So it may be that aluminum is toxic, but we simply never expose ourselves to high enough doses. And certainly, cooking with aluminum cookware is uh, is not going to allow us to absorb very much aluminum at all. Well, that's very reassuring. And I think, why don't we just stay on the lines of Alzheimer's and cognitive degeneration and talk a little bit about something that I thought was very interesting in your book, and that is the protective value of certain spices. And, of course, turmeric has been in the news. I think it was listed as one of the top taste trends in 2014 and 2015. So let's talk a little bit about spices and how they can be protective of our brains. All right, let's, let's deal with that one because uh, curcumin, which is in turmeric, is, it's a molecule that is used extensively in India for making curry. Uh, and that's what really drew our attention. Again, it goes back to the epidemiology. We discovered many years ago that the uh, incidence of Alzheimer's disease in India was very low and and initially, the assumption was that, well, the, the record-keeping may have been an error. But as we followed up on that lead, and epidemiologists studied India far more closely, we discovered it was not a problem with record-keeping. Really, in fact, the people who live in India do not get Alzheimer's disease as often as people in the rest of the world. And one of the key things they looked at was diet, because uh, we wondered if people were exposed via their diet to something. And so our interest settled on curcumin, which is a spice that's heated up in, you know, in an oil, so it's extracted very well out of the spice. And people eat this every day in fairly low doses. Now, curcumin, it does not cross the blood-gut barrier very well. It will. It is not absorbed into the brain very well, and it spontaneously degenerates in our blood. That all sounds very bad, but it's actually a good thing. It turns out that it isn't the curcumin. It's the, these two molecules of ferulic acid that form in your gut and in the blood, and they will cross the blood-brain barrier to a slight degree. And if you were to eat this spice every day, the way they do in, you know, frequently in India, what we find is that it can be very beneficial. I've done some research on it, and it is a very safe spice that people can consume in high doses, obviously every day if they wish. Most people in America don't eat Indian food with curry that often. So we don't tend to see it in our epidemiological studies here in the West. But it's been clearly demonstrated, I think, in India 
that it's that particular spice and that particular molecule. The focus of research on curcumin now is to try and find a way to modify it so that it gets across the blood-brain barrier more easily. So the hope is that we can convert it into something that would be taken as a pill that would cross into the brain and offer protection. You know, it might become part of your daily multivitamin or part of your daily cereal. And that, we think, is something that's probably very doable. At the moment, the NIH is trying to find clinical evidence to prove in the laboratory that what we're seeing in India is real, that curcumin can truly alter the, uh, the development and onset of Alzheimer's disease. At the moment, I would say that it's probably real, but we need to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt and then find molecules that are going to do it for us here in the, in the West. Mm-hmm. We just have a few minutes, and I have dominated the conversation with my questions. Is there anything in particular that you want to bring forth when you were writing the second edition, when you were updating your book, were there things that came to the fore for you that you want to make sure that people know about? Yes. Actually, this is a topic we haven't touched on yet, and that, and this is, I, I included it mainly because of questions that came to me, and that was always, which is best, dieting versus exercise? And I would have always, and I think in the original edition, said, you know, we need a balance of both because you have to assume that exercise is going to burn some calories. But in the second edition, I, I argue that, you know, evolutionarily we are not designed very well to lose calories, to lose fat by exercising because most of that goes via the muscles and their activation. And most of our calories are not burned by muscle unless, unless you're going to become a long-distance decathlete of some kind uh, or long-distance runner. You're probably never going to find that exercise really helps you lose weight. What I come down on the side of is dieting. The most effective way to lose weight is still caloric restriction. Don't eat it in the first place because it's going to be very hard to exercise it off. Uh, so the, the most effective way to lose weight is to take in fewer calories. It's not to eat a lot of calories and then try and exercise it off. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because so much of the fast food industry and the processed food industry tells us you're just not exercising enough. You can have all these high-calorie foods, <laughs> right? But I also think that your point is very well taken in that not only is caloric restriction good for weight control, but caloric restriction is also really good for longevity. Absolutely, yes. But you see, there's no money in that, and that was another point I wanted to make. I think it's worth pointing out that you just hinted at, that companies uh, are not going to encourage us to exercise less. It's, you know, the purchase of tennis shoes and exercise equipment is a multi-billion dollar industry, and our culture is designed around people eating out and, and consuming, consuming food. And that, of course, is why we have an obesity epidemic taking place here in the West. Well, Dr. Wink, would you like to give us a website where people can read more about your work and about this book? Probably the best one is to go to my blog at Psychology Today. Or if they're curious about the actual research I'm publishing, they can go to my website at the Ohio State University and just, you know, put my name in as a search. And they'll come to my department website and all of my publications there. And there are PDFs that they can download from links. Uh, there's also uh, my TED Talk is there and other things. So if they're interested in finding out more about what I'm doing and the kind of research I'm conducting, uh, that would be a good source. Great. And we'll provide a couple of web links also to this interview for KOPN. Dr. Wink, I want to thank you so much. I knew our time would fly. Your book is really interesting. It is an easily digestible. It's like an appetizer to understanding how the chemicals in food naturally affect our thoughts and feelings. And I want to thank you so much for allowing me to spend time with you today. 
Thanks for the opportunity, Melinda. Good talking to you again. Good talking with you. And just to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank Dr. Wank for being such an entertaining and informed guest.